fears that the entire world is on quarantine. Behind what is said is a virus. Many are shook. Some are lost. They don't know who to believe or who to believe in. Should I wear a mask? Should I not? All behind a virus. But there's nothing new under the sun. Because I assure you, there has something that has been plaguing this planet and mankind for a very long time. This nation, this idea called America, was and always will be a new world, our new world. It's quite amazing to me that over a thousand CEOs, billionaires from companies have resigned from their companies. Microsoft, Bill Gates resigned from Microsoft two days ago. The CEO of UPS, she resigned from UPS two days ago. Walmart take $40 billion of their own money and transfer it from their stocks. Not stocks, they transferred it to their personal trust funds. Why? Why did the CEO of Disney, Walt Disney, step down last week? Why did the CEO of MasterCard step down a few weeks ago? Why did the CEO of Uber step down? Why did the CEO of Wells Fargo Disney and etc. So why all these CEOs there? Rural Kansas, the site of an abandoned nuclear missile silo. Armed security patrol the entrance to a doomsday bunker that's reserved for the wealthy elite, and sales are booming. Since the uh, election of Donald Trump, we've seen a whole new demographic of people calling in, people that didn't know we existed before. Larry Hall is the owner of the Survival Condo Project. These 16,000-pound doors lock you inside. We're heading deep below the surface of the earth into an underground bunker like no other. We are in a typical full-floor residential unit, and even though we are more than 100 feet underground right now, you can see that it's certainly not a claustrophobic area. Twelve luxurious condos exist here with fireplaces, high-end appliances, jacuzzis, even windows. Yes, windows. High-definition TVs broadcast a live feed of the outside world right into your living room. The price tag for this three-bedroom, two-bath condo, $2.3 million. Well, as the sign says, welcome to the beach. And look at this. It's a swimming pool with a slide and waterfall. Other common areas include a movie theater, rock climbing wall, and shooting range. There's even a farm that grows all the fresh fruits and vegetables you'll need. This can grow up to 70 different uh, species of plants, lettuces, uh, tomatoes, carrots. The bunker runs on power sources like wind and diesel generators. We have enough fuel to run these diesels for two and a half years. Plenty of time to ride out worldwide chaos should it ever erupt. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? This is the new world order that they have been speaking about for such a long time. To move toward an historic period of cooperation. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order, can emerge. 
and the president outlined his vision of a new world order in which the U.S. would participate fully. And for the international order that we have worked for generations to build. This is an historic moment. We have in this past year made great progress in ending the long era of conflict and Cold War. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. In September 2015, all 193 UN member states adopted the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. But do you ever stop and think if what you do is sustainable? And do you know what sustainable development means? Sustainable development is to make the world a better place for everyone now without destroying the possibilities for the next generations. If you wonder if something is sustainable, you can ask yourself, can we do this over and over again forever? Sustainable development means that we need to keep three things in mind at once. Social progress, economic development, and climate and environment. Migration is a global phenomenon that touches us all. Many of us know someone who has moved to another country or have migrated ourselves. By embracing the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and its 17 Sustainable Development Goals, we have an unmissable opportunity to harness the development potential of migration, to support beneficial outcomes, starting with reducing inequalities and putting the right policies in place to ensure safer, more orderly and regular migration. It's a United Nations plan. It's called the Agenda for the 21st Century. And so many of us around the world think that, um, well, sustainable development, it just sounds so great. Isn't it about recycling and creative reuse and, uh, and creating energy and food resources for everyone? And the answer is no, it really is not. It's about moving populations into city centers, concentrated city centers, and clearing them out of the rural areas. So I became, um, I found out about it um, in a very unusual way, actually, because uh, I spent my career as a legal uh, witness, as an expert witness for the California Department of Transportation. I'm an expert in land use and land valuation, and uh, my specialty is in eminent domain valuation. So, of course, I was valuing property for the government so that the government could acquire that property for road projects. And what I found about 10 years ago, uh, around uh, or 10 or 13 years ago, uh, was that land actually, it was very difficult to say what it was worth because you couldn't know what people could do with it because they were being restricted from using their property. And as I explored that and found that it wasn't just in the San Francisco Bay Area where, uh, where I was working, it was in fact all across the nation and the world, I looked behind that and I found United Nations Agenda 21, Sustainable Development. ID2020 is a global strategic initiative aiming to help deliver against the United Nations Sustainable Goal 
of legal identity for all. There are 1.5 billion people in the world who don't have a legal identity. No legal identity means no bank account and social exclusion. I'm going to talk today about energy and climate. And that might seem a bit surprising because my full-time work at the foundation is mostly about vaccines and seeds, about the things that we need to invent and deliver to help the poorest two billion live better lives. We need to meet a new constraint, and that constraint has to do with CO2. CO2 is warming the planet, and the equation on CO2 is actually a, a very straightforward one. If you sum up the CO2 that gets emitted, that leads to a temperature increase, and that temperature increase leads to some very negative effects. And there's certainly uncertainty about how bad those effects will be, but they will be extremely bad. I asked the top scientists in this several times, do we really have to get down to near zero? Can't we just you know, cut it in half or a quarter? And the answer is that until we get near to zero, the temperature will continue to rise. This equation has four factors, a little bit of multiplication. So you've got a thing on the left, CO2, that you want to get to zero. And that's going to be based on the number of people, the services each person's using on average, the energy on average for each service, and the CO2 being put out uh, per unit of energy. So let's look at each one of these and see how we can get this down to zero. Uh, probably one of these numbers is going to have to get pretty near to zero. Uh, that's back from high school algebra. But let's, let's take a look. Uh, first, we've got population. Now, the world today has 6.8 billion people. That's headed up to about 9 billion. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, health care, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. But if we do a really great job on new vaccines, health care, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. But there we see an increase of uh, about 1.3. No doubt you'll be hearing about all the differences between John Kerry and George W. Bush. Uh, but we've discovered they do have something in common. During their respective college days at Yale, they both belonged to a group. You both were members of Skull and Bones, a secret society at Yale. What does that tell us? Uh, not much, because it's a secret. <laughs> Is there a secret handshake? Is there a secret code? I wish there were something secret I could manifest. 322, secret number. Uh, there are all kinds of secrets, Tim. You were both in Skull and Bones, the secret society. It's so secret we can't talk about it. What does that mean for America? Three two two is more than just three numbers. It actually denotes the year 322 BC. In that year, Greece was forced from a democracy, which is for the people, by the people, to a plutocracy. A plutocracy is a government that is ran by the wealthy and or elite. What is the Bohemian Grove? Well, it's a kind of summer camp for the powerful, an all-male gathering in great secrecy. This group was formed in the late 1800s by artists, industrialists, and politicians. Bohemian attendees worship the owl as their deity. The Aztecs, Mayans, and other natives of Mesoamerica consider the owl a symbol of destruction and death. This is why the opening ritual for the club is the cremation of care. 
During the ritual, the effigy of a baby is rowed across the water by the Grim Reaper and given to a high priest, who then tosses it on a fiery sacrificial altar of a 40-foot owl god. It is an earth-based ritual in which care is burned away. The conscience is symbolically cast aside so that they may ignore the pain they have inflicted on others for the advancement of their own agendas. And what you're looking at here, staggeringly, is um, a group of people, some of the most famous people in America, in long gowns. Behind them there, you see a 40-foot stone owl. And there's the fire between them, next to the lake at Bohemian Grove. Now, one might wonder, understandably, why the people that run the banking, political, um, economic system, and the media in America should be dressed in long robes, doing a ceremony to a 40-foot stone owl. I think we should be told. You see, for over a hundred and 20 plus years in Northern California, in Sonoma County, on a 2,700 acre secluded redwood grove, leaders from around the world, prime ministers, chancellors, presidents, governors, again, the heads of industry, banking, academia, the media, Hollywood, travel there to engage in bizarre, ancient, Canaanite, Luciferian, Babylon, mystery religion ceremonies. A campground statue reminds Bohemians to keep their mouths shut about the Grove. Many world events have been shaped at the Grove, including the creation of the atomic bomb. Discussions at the Grove in the 1930s helped lead to the development of nuclear power and the atomic bomb. Every Republican president since Calvin Coolidge has been a member, as well as many Democrats, including Jimmy Carter. If you look at the membership lists of the Bohemian Grove and the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderberg Group, a lot of the key level people are overlapping and are involved in, in numerous groups. In addition to pagan rituals that take place there, this all-male club also deals with darker themes through the plays Montezuma, which feature Aztec human sacrifice, and Faust, which feature Mephisto. They prey on the system rather than protect it. This is not a new world order of peace and prosperity. It is not a world government to save the earth. During difficult times, we must remain ever vigilant against seemingly positive solutions imposed to suit their aims. Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We are threatened by a superclass that control the flow of information and high technology from the public. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever present and is gravely to be regarded. We must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. It is time to put down the remote control, to turn off your Xbox, and start paying attention. It is time to step away from everyday luxuries and pop culture and take action against a monolithic concentrated evil in order to save what's left of humanity. We must now trade in our apathy for action. Parents, but the Satanic Temple is trying to reach students by getting into elementary schools nationwide. The group says it's an alternative to a Christian-based after-school program. Number 7's Mark Boyle's been looking into this, and Mark, they say it's a kid-friendly club.
That's right. Hard to believe, but that's exactly what they preach here. And this is the parental permission slip that they're handing out so your kid can participate. Here's the After School Satan website. They even have a children's book dedicated to this. Now, they say there are some wholesome activities and lessons to be learned, but others believe it has no place around children. It could turn into one hellish extracurricular activity. That is, if the Satanic Temple has its way. That's After School Satan. So I picture it sort of more like... Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts? Yep, you heard that right. It's called After School Satan. Amy Jensen, who graduated from DU and used to teach in Denver, has offered to sponsor the club at this Tucson school. Jensen says it's more about opening minds and less about worshiping Satan. It's not where we sit down and we talk about Satan and we talk about religion and we talk about all of those things. Actually, those are thrown to the wayside and they're based in science um, and more of cultural awareness. We're not actually talking about Satan and Satanism because we have no interest in converting. It's just that in our religion, science and reason is what is the most valued. But there is obviously a lot of concern here. Some like Liberty Council founder Matt Staver say the club is nothing more than a bunch of atheists trying to fight back against Christian-based after-school programs. This particular so-called Satanist club is not wanting to be there to express a viewpoint. They're wanting to disrupt the process. I want to say that everybody's entitled to their beliefs. However, I feel like that's just a little odd. Staver says he's seen pushes like this before, which have failed. The future of after-school Satan is still unclear. The statue itself has these children like they're flocking to Satan, you know. People of Arkansas and supporters of religious liberty, I present to you Baphomet. What did Jesus say? In the last days, there would be a war on the saints. Their latest target is Arkansas and a Ten Commandments monument, which was recently installed on the Capitol grounds, and which they claim, in isolation, violates the First Amendment's ruling on the separation of church and state. The Ten Commandments monument is illegal if it remains up in exclusion to other monuments of religious expression, if they allow our monument to be erected on the same capital grounds, that would legalize the Ten Commandments and it would also stand as, uh, as testament to our respect for pluralism and religious liberty and First Amendment values. So here it is in all its glory, the offending Ten Commandments monument in the surrounding grounds of the Capitol. It's protected, as you can see, by these sturdy bollards because the first day it was erected last summer, a man drove into it with his car, destroying it. The Ten Commandments monument was a donation from an evangelical senator who claims it was not a religious gesture. It simply represents the morals that this great nation was founded upon. The Satanic Temple disagree. They think this seems like a very religious gesture and they want proof that it's not. So... They're offering a donation of their own, which happens to be a statue of Baphomet, and they think that if the Capitol rejects their donation, that proves that this gesture is a violation of the constitutional separation of church and state. But I thought this was America. One nation under God, right? What God are you referring to? I mean, because last time I checked, our God was supposed to be the God of the Bible based on Christian principles. Hmm. So if this wasn't a lie from the very beginning, how do we lose our way? In the garden? 
Well, we know what happened in the garden based on the Bible, right? Adam and Eve sinned. It didn't take long from Adam to Noah for the world to get so corrupt that God decided to destroy the earth with a great flood. All life was consumed by that water with the exception of Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Oh, what a story that bloodline tells. Chapter 10 Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And under them were sons born after the flood, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Jabin, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tyrus, and the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Ripheth, and Togarma, and the sons of Jabin, Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families in their nations. And the sons of Ham, Cush and Mizraim, and Phut and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah, and Sabta and Reamah and Sabtica. And the sons of Reamah, Sheba and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Ebrick and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Kela, and Reason between Nineveh and Kela, the same as a great city. And Mizraim begat Ludim and Anamim and Lahabim and Naphtahim and Perthrusim and Kashlehim, out of whom came Philistim and Kaphtarim. And Canaan begat Sidon his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gergesite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arbadite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. And afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar unto Gaza as thou goest unto Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Adma, and Zeboim, even unto Lacia. These are the sons of Ham after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Under Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder, even to him were children born. The children of Shem, Elam, and Asher, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram, and the children of Aram, Uz, and Hull, and Gether, and Mash. And Arphaxad begat Selah, and Selah begat Eber. And unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Pelag, for in his days was the earth divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan begat Almodad, and Sheleph, and Hazer Maveth, and Jerah, and Hadoram, and Uzal, and Dikla, and Obal, and Abimeo, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab, all these were the sons of Joktan, and their dwelling was from Mesha, as thou goest unto Sefer, a mount of the east. These are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Of the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth. But thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites, 
and the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods, so should ye sin against the Lord your God. Ham's bloodline appeared to be tainted. I guess that's why I don't deal with the swine. Because you see, so much came from that bloodline. Ham had Cush, Cush had Nimrod, and so it began. From the bloodline of Ham came Nimrod. Nimrod was the leader of the first New World Order, leading man astray in total rebellion to God by creating paganism, which is the belief in many gods. And Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Achad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Ashur, and builded Nineveh, and the city of Rehoboth, and Kala. And Resen, between Nineveh and Kala, the same is a great city. The first city mentioned in the building of his kingdom is Babel. Babel means confusion, or mixing. This becomes the heart, or capital, of Babylon. To come out of Babylon, Revelation 18.4, for example, means to come out of the confusion, or mixing. The second city mentioned to be created by Nimrod is Arach, which means to lengthen, prolong, or live with. Thus, so far, the idea of Nimrod's kingdom is to lengthen, prolong, or live with confusion or mixing. The next city mentioned to be created by Nimrod is Achad. Achad means subtle. It is also from an unused root word meaning a fortress or to strengthen. Thus, so far, the idea of Nimrod's kingdom is to subtly strengthen the living with confusion and mixing. So the question then becomes, how did Nimrod subtly strengthen the living with confusion and mixing? The next city created answers that question. The next city mentioned to be created by Nimrod is Kalna, which means fortress of Anu. Anu was from Sumerian culture and a god that many other gods derived from. So the centerpiece of the first phase of Nimrod's kingdom comprised of subtly confusing and mixing through a belief in a god called Anu. Through Anu, many other gods originated. From this point on, through Nimrod's kingdom, it became commonplace to believe in multiple gods. From there, Nimrod went into Assyria. The next city mentioned to be created by Nimrod is Nineveh. The Greeks slash Romans attributed to this as the abode of Ninus. The city was later said to be devoted to the Ishtar of Nineveh, and Nina was one of the Babylonian names of that goddess. Regardless of how things progressed, it was through Nimrod that the idea of confusing or mixing began, starting with dedicating a city to the false god Anu. We saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. The Nephilim are back. The giants are back. See, this is one of the main reasons why God destroyed the earth with the flood. That was his doing. He gave man a charge to destroy that bloodline because God knew what they would do. And make no mistakes about it, 
That bloodline is the seed of the serpent. They have been more than just a thorn in the side of mankind. When I first became Christian, I was a little overambitious, and I went out and bought the Satanic Bible, which I've since thrown out, to speed read it to see if I could find any parallels between the New Age movement and the Satanic Bible. And when I was reading through it, I was finding topics like the Age of Aquarius, Lucifer as the personification of enlightenment, Thoth, spirit guides, pantheism, spiritual rebirth through studying the mysteries, the all-seeing eye, being your own redeemer and savior through enlightenment. It sounded like a slightly darker version of the exact same topics that were discussed in the New Age. So I dug a little deeper and I found this quote by Anton LaVey. In the scores of books lining the shelves of New Age bookstores, there are instructions for guided meditation, creative visualizations, out-of-body experiences, getting in touch with your spirit guides, fortune-telling by cards, crystal balls, or the stars. What if Satanists reclaimed these for their own dark purposes and integrated them into rituals dedicated to the devil, where they rightfully belong? New Agers have freely drawn upon all manner of satanic material, adapting it to their own hypocritical purposes. But in truth, all New Age labeling is, again, trying to play the devil's game without using his infernal name. Some of you might be familiar with a woman named Helena Blavatsky. She is an occultist and a spiritualist from the 19th century who has been called the mother of the New Age and the mother of modern spirituality. She would teach on things like ascended masters, ancient mythology, hermeticism, Hinduism, mysticism, scientism, astrology, sacred math, esoteric knowledge, chakras, Atlantis, Kabbalah, and every other New Age topic. Between 1887 and 1997, over 2,800 journals were published in the Theosophical magazine she started called Lucifer. Yes, that's right. The mother of modern spirituality published her journals in her magazine, Lucifer. Satan, the enemy of God, is in reality the highest divine spirit. Lucifer is divine and terrestrial light, the Holy Ghost, and Satan at one and the same time. So here is the mother of the New Age, who has had the largest influence on this movement, praising Satan as the spiritual father of mankind and the one true God of this universe. Is it possible that he's the spiritual father of the New Age movement and the type of esoteric material that was taught by Blavatsky? Paul once said that Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. And maybe it's the case that this is exactly what we're seeing within the New Age movement. Now, even after all that, I know a lot of you are probably saying, it's yoga, man. It's not that big of a deal. Get over it. This is how I center myself. It's a crazy world. This is how I get my peace. Nah, last I checked, as believers, we get our peace, our shalom, our perfect peace through the Father by way of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, yoga is a part of Hinduism. And the whole purpose is to awaken that coiled snake called the Kundalini spirit. You will have a Kundalini awakening, whether you prepare for it or not. Hmm. When you uncoil the snake, you awaken your seven chakras all the way to the top. The third eye is one of the chakras. Yet again, another example of a form of godliness, but not from the Most High God. Wanting a spiritual experience, dealing with different spirits and not the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer in the body of Christ, this shouldn't be for you. Lucifer promised mankind in the garden 
that they too can be gods. And this is achieved through a higher conscious level, raising your vibration, all the different things that are described that will bring you to a certain point where you will have that spiritual encounter. But yet again, this is not the way. Yahweh is the way, not the way of things such as awakening the third eye. Gods, angels, different cultures call us by different names. Now all of a sudden it's superhero. Gods, angels, different cultures call us by different names. Now all of a sudden it's superhero. And there are more of us. Question, what is repentance unto life? Answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. I gave chase, you fled away, you laughed in my face when I begged you stay. Yeah, I crawled out on bended knee. You dog me out, treat me like an enemy. Yeah. And despite the tears and the way you act, if you just come home, I take you back. With a love like this, there is. And I carry sin The house is deceiving I clean the lair within Man, y'all using arrogance like it's heroin That fake reality takes me out of the cares of men They can't see they in need of a good Samaritan Your flesh is weary Come rest in me like the Sheraton Wherein doth repentance unto life consist? Answer Repentance unto life doth chiefly consist in two things One in turning from sin and forsaking it. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whose confesseth and forsaketh them shall find mercy. Come home, yeah. Come home.
turning unto God, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We must have conformity to him in grace before we can have communion with him in glory. Grace and glory are linked and chained together. Grace precedes glory as the morning star ushers in the sun. Only the pure in heart shall see God. God is speaking to us. He's telling us to come home. We hoard around enough in the world with different things, different gods, unknowingly and knowingly. Omission and commission. Time up. Time is up. We need to be a worthy bride to the bridegroom he's coming back will we be worthy we're promised to him he is our king are you fit to be in the kingdom come home the things that are happening in this world now is only the beginning. Hear me. And if you don't hear me, hear God. Your God. But who is your God? Who do you pledge your allegiance to? Are you more loyal to your country? And to your God? Hmm. He's asking you. He's commanded us. Just like Abraham. To be set apart. From the rest of the world. To be separate. Are you sheep? Are you goat? When the Messiah comes back. He will not ask. He will simply separate. Please, if you claim to be in the body of Christ, please act accordingly. The new world order is no match for he who brings a new Jerusalem and will create a new heaven and a new earth will you be there will you see his face will you be able to withstand his face or will the might of the light of the father who sends the son will it destroy you there is nothing new under the S-U-N. 
but I prepare myself for the S-O-N. My God. My God. Please, people. Please. Time is winding up. It's no longer time to play. Please. This is not play play. This is as real as it would ever be. Choose wisely. Please. We are his and he is ours. But in this hour, there's much despair. Show faith, not fear. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? That even matters. Come, King Jesus. But whether they want to hear it or not, the Lord always sends forth watchmen to warn. He always does. He never does anything till he warns. The gospel of accommodation. Now, to accommodate means to adapt. It means to make suitable or acceptable. It also means to adjust, to make something very convenient. It means to yield to the desires of others to placate them. Now, you put that together, and I'm talking about a gospel that's been invented in hell and is now being propagated all over the United States. It's a suitable, acceptable, convenient a gospel that has yielded to the desires and the weakness of sinful men. I call it the gospel of accommodation because it's adapting and adjusting the gospel uh, to appease and attract sinners. This gospel accommodation is primarily an American cultural invention to ease our lifestyle. It appeals primarily to white America, rich and prosperous. It was invented out of hell itself. This new gospel is sweeping the America and the nation is influencing ministers of every denomination. It's giving birth to mega churches. Some of the largest churches in the United States are involved in this gospel. It's a non-confronting, convenient gospel adapted. It is spoon-fed to the congregation by uh, skits, Humorous skits and drama, short, non-abrasive, 20-minute messages, and it's all called seeker-friendly. The seeker-friendly churches. And one of these days, there may be somebody move into the city and try to bring one of these churches right into New York City. They are springing up now overnight, and suddenly thousands attend. This new gospel is being propagated by bright young, intelligent, ta talented ministers. They, they came upon a formula by which you can go into any city, in any town, and almost overnight build a mega church. And as I understand this formula, you begin by going into the community with your workers and you pull the community to find out what the sinner found offensive about attending church. Well, why don't you attend church? And what was offensive about it? And what would it what would we have to do to bring you back into the church? What would make you comfortable? What would you like to see? 
you don't like choirs, we'll do away with choirs. You, you, you don't like suits in church, you come the way you choose. Uh, just tell us what you want. And they survey the community and then sit in their, uh, with their computers and in their conference rooms and they design a program that will make it comfortable for the sinner and make it friendly for, they rather call it sinner friendly, they would call it seeker friendly and try to attract them to come into the house of God. It's becoming the most prosperous, most flourishing of all religious movements in the history of America. The churches are run like corporations. The pastor's the CEO, chief executive officer. And it's big business. And this formula has now been cleverly packaged and it is now being pushed in seminars all over the United States. It sounds good, what they say sounds very good. It sounds spiritual in its goals. It sounds like Jesus is the central theme. And folks, I'm not going to name any names because I'm not talking about the character of these men. I'm talking about the gospel that they preach. I am here to remind you that Paul the Apostle warned of the coming of another gospel which we have not preached. He said there is coming another gospel that's going to preach another Jesus. You'll hear his name. It'll sound sweet, but it's not the Jesus that I preach, Paul said. It's not the true Jesus. Paul goes on, or Paul was amazed. He said that you were so removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ to another gospel. Folks, listen to me. There is in the land right now with thousands of people sitting under another gospel, another Jesus, being preached by ministers who have lost the touch of God and been transformed into angels of light to come and to deceive, if possible, even the elect of God. Paul goes to warn the church, it's really not another gospel, but it's a perversion of the gospel of Christ, which is really not another, Paul said, but there be some that trouble you and pervert or change the gospel of Christ. He said, they're going to change it. They're going to accommodate the sinner. They're going to accommodate their pleasures. They're going to accommodate all of their needs. And they're going to design a gospel with their own Christ, with their own doctrine. Then this awful warning from Paul. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, but that which we preached unto you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Folks, I didn't say that. The Apostle Paul said it. If anybody preach another gospel, what you've heard, if anyone preach anything but the crucified Christ, if anyone preach anything that appeases man in his sin, that's not the gospel you heard from me, Paul said, and anyone preaches another, let him be accursed. And he said it's going to be dangerous because it's going to come from seemingly pious, sincere ministers. That's what made the doctrine called antinomianism so dangerous because it was in the hands of some very uh, fine, uh, good living men like Dr. Crisp, who was one of the founders of that anti-law movement back during the Puritan age. Anti-law, they, they cast aside the burden of the law and the reason it was so accepted because the men who preached it seemed to be so pious. And I tremble when I hear Paul warn us that Satan's going to come right into the church disguised as an angel of light. He's going to infiltrate into the church with his own ministers. They'll come angel-like, he said, preaching a false gospel of righteousness. For such are false prophets, false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, 
for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose ends will be according to their works. Paul said they're going to come and they're going to glory in the flesh. They're going to glory in their might, their money. They're going to glory in their bigness, their numbers. And they're going to glory in the fact that they are so contemporary. They're going to glory in their acceptance by the world. Jesus warned, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. They're to come like gentle sheep, sincere, intelligent, bright, but said inward they're ravening wolves. And folks, Jesus gave that in the context of his message. He said, because straight is the gate, narrow is the way, which leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. And the very next verse, he says, beware of false prophets. You're going to come in sheep's clothing, but they're ravening wolves. It's Christ himself warning us. False prophets, false pastors, false evangelists, posing as, sub as submissive sheep. I'm going to come saying the way is not that narrow. The way is not that straight. And they're going to accommodate. They're going to change the gospel to suit the needs of the people. Jesus puts his finger on the motives behind them. Ambition. The word ravening here, ravening wolves in the Greek means star for recognition and recognition and gratification. Men are going to rise, starve to make it. Please view the entire episode on our YouTube channel. Thank you and God bless.